Welcome to this week's Soul Pepper Saturday Cabaret Podcast. I'm Gregory Sinclair, a resident artist here at Soul Pepper and the Warren M. West Director of Audio Programs. This week we're presenting excerpts from a new music and dialogue chamber piece conceived and developed by Tom Allen. It's called The Last Curlew, based on the conservation classic Last of the Curlews by Canadian journalist and novelist Fred Bodsworth. Sometime in an environmentally ruined future, a young girl, played by Jenny Young, and her grandmother, played by Deborah Drakeford, hopefully await the return of the curlew, a bird long thought extinct. Music is performed by Lori Gemmel and Tsuko Kimura. much farther, Grandma. Come on now, keep going. It's about as far as the last time you asked. There now, you see the fence? The rock is just ahead, and we can see the farm and all the fields from there. Just climb through the hole. That's the same hole as last time. Yep, same as last time. Why didn't somebody fix it? (sighs) I gave up years ago. Good thing, too. It was a lot of work cutting that hole. Grandma, you cut this hole? Fence doesn't do anything anyway. Nothing to protect anymore. Except the raccoons. Raccoons? We need protection from them. They're better off than we are. And the curlew. Well, yes, that's right. The curlew does need our protection. We're going to see it this time, right? He might fly right over us. He might even stop. But you promised. Hey, where's your sleeping bag? We're using yours. What? That's what we did last time. That was years ago. You were tiny back then. We want the both of us fit in one sleeping bag now. Yes, we will. You'll see. Is that the lookout? Are you sure we're going to see the curlew today? Will it be soon? When? When when is it going to be? Just, just be patient. Sun's just coming up. Then how long? Can't say. You just got to watch. That's what great grandpa Fred told you? That's what he said. Again and again and again. How long ago was that? A very long time ago. But you still come? Yep, just like him. Every single year. The male Eskimo curlew recognizes the ice-hemmed S-twist on the river a kilometer below and... Can I have a drink? You know, I think you interrupted me in that very same place last time. I did? Are you going to do that every year? How many times are we coming? As many as it takes, dearie. As what takes? The male Eskimo curlew recognizes the ice-hemmed S-twist on the river a kilometer below Why is it called an Eskimo curlew? 
Well, there used to be all kinds of curlews. Hudsonian, long-billed, slender-billed. All gone now? That's right. The slender-billed lasted until the 2000s. The long-billed another 50 years after that, and the Hudsonian almost into this century. But our curlew's not gone. No. How do you know? You're going to have to let me tell you. The male Eskimo curlew recognizes the ice-hemmed S-twist on the river a kilometer below. Can you just tell me this time? I am telling you, just like great-grandpa Fred told me, if you'd let me. But can you just tell me? You know, like you tell me other stories? Fred, I tried. I really did. All right. Every spring, the curlew goes to the Arctic, days and days north of here, all the way up to a twisting riverbank near the Arctic Sea. The S-twist. Right. It's a long, long trip, and he doesn't stop at all for the whole last day, not for ten straight hours. So he's exhausted. But he always comes back, and he always finds the same spot for a nest. Oh, he's an incredible flyer. Strong and fast, even though his feathers are all shabby from the long flight. And when he finally sees the nesting place, he lets himself slip back and forth, down, fast, like a skier in complete control. What's a skier? Uh, it's something we used to do when there was snow. It's like he's sliding on the air. No, he doesn't do that. He does. It's easy for him. He lands on the mud flats, and right away, he starts to eat. What does he eat? Bugs and snails, mostly. He's got a long, slender bill, curved down. It's like a stick, but he can feel with it, so he doesn't even have to look. He just pokes down and finds food. He eats for an hour, and then he rests. Lying down? <laughs> no way! There are foxes and owls. There are? Well, there were. Now it'd be coyotes, I guess, if they'd bother leaving the dump. Either way, he stands on one leg and tucks his bill under his wing, keeping his ears awake and listening. But that's all he needs. You see? He's just gone 800 kilometers without stopping. And now he rests for half an hour, and he's ready. Ready for what? The female. He has a nesting territory picked out, and he'll fight anything that comes even close. Oh, he's fearless. And all he's thinking about is when the female will come. The summer is really short way up there, and there's no time to lose. They have to mate, build a nest, warm the eggs, and feed the babies, and get them strong enough to make that incredible trip by themselves, all in just a few weeks. So where is she? He doesn't know. He's waiting. How long? Three years now. Three times, all the way north, finding the territory, fighting off everything else. And three times, he's alone. It's his whole life. He's never even seen a female Eskimo curlew, but he knows she's there, somewhere. And he waits. Waiting like us. Just like us. He believes. He does. He has to.
summer goes. No female? Nope. He fights off everything that comes into his territory. He does his courtship flight, shooting straight up and charging straight down like a stone. But no female is there to see it. And soon the days are getting shorter. Other birds start leaving for the south. His friends. Not exactly. They're just in the same place at the same time. He needs friends. Now they'll just slow him down. He's faster than any of them. He lets them all go, still waiting for the female, until it's so late that he has to leave, or he'll freeze and die. So, one day he feels the wind going his direction, and he climbs high, and off he goes. Uh, is that him? Where? Over there, just over the trees. It's a crow. Oh. Are you sure he's coming? He's the best flyer there is. 70, 80 kilometers an hour. That's how fast he flies. And he's tough. Going south, the others all take the easy way down over the prairies, but not him. The curlew goes south and east for days at a time, all the way across Canada to Labrador. You know why? I know. Berries. Ah, <laughs> good for you. Berries. You were listening. There's a hillside on the Labrador coast covered in berries, and he eats until he's ready to pop. I told Monica about that part, and she said you'd die. Eating berries? Well, that's true. They're poison now. But they were safe then. His whole head would be purple from the juice. Really? Oh, yeah. Juicy and sweet. You ate them? I did. When I was a girl, I ate berries every summer. Can I have a protein cake? God. Protein cakes. I can't, it's pathetic. I can't believe you'd say that. What? I'm hungry. Just one. We gotta make them last. Does the curlew eat protein cakes now too? God help me, no. He eats berries. But he'll get sick. Maybe he's figured that part out. I don't know. But he's gotta go to the berries in Labrador. That's where he meets the others. The female? Nah. It's a flock of plovers. They're small, but they're fast, too. And if he doesn't go full out, they can keep up with him. They're friends. <laughs> if you want. It's better than flying alone. They eat together, and then, when the wind is right, the curlew leads them out over the ocean. He does have to slow down just a little to know they're with him, but it feels right to have other wings beating just behind his for once. They have this incredible sense they can feel each other flying just by the little swirls in the air that each wing beat makes. So even though they fly at night and it's dark and raining and foggy, they can stay together. How do they know where they're going? They just know. We still don't understand it. They read the planet better than we do, even with all our technology, even with all our transmissions screwing them up. They don't have to check. They just know. So they're heading south from Labrador, over the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and a storm hits. It's raining at first, and then snow, wet, cold snow that weighs down their feathers and drains their strength, and a wind that pitches them around, but they can't stop. There's nothing but ocean for hours. The only thing to do is to keep going and outrun the storm. Faster than the wind? Yep, they can do that. But this storm is going as fast as they can go, and it's, it's moving east, out to sea, 
So to get ahead of it, they have to go even farther in that direction, way out over the cold Atlantic. And as the snow and the cold pulls down on them, the waves roar up like snapping jaws. The plovers are barely keeping up when a big wave rolls in. It's like, it's like a cliff of water. The curlew's muscles are aching, but he lurches up, and as the wave bears down, all he can see is the blackness of the water snapping at him from every side. Make it? Three of the plovers can't get above the wave. What happens? The ocean swallows them up and they disappear. The curlew should help them. He barely makes it over himself. Going back would kill him. How come he can survive all these years on poison berries, but he can't help his friends? They've got to keep moving. Even after they get ahead of the storm, they're so far out over the ocean that they have to fly all that night. All the next day, all the next night, and even into the morning of the next day before they reach land. Fifty-five hours. More than two days and two nights. 
By then, they're all the way south to a delta in Venezuela. But the rest of the plovers make it, right? Yeah, they do. And the curlew feeds beside them, and they take turns resting, watching out for each other. But by the end of that day, the curlew picks up and he continues south without them. Why doesn't he stay with them? He needs to find the female. There are no storms now and no oceans to cross. So he only goes as far as he wants each day. But soon he's crossed South America to the Pacific side. It's dry and rocky and close enough to Antarctica that it's starting to get cool again. But there is food at low tide. This is where he was going. And sometimes he even stops looking for the female. What if he never finds her? He doesn't think about that now. He's happy? We don't know what he feels. I'd be happy. If I flew from the top of the world to the bottom? 13,000 kilometers. Does he really do that? Of course he does. I'd be super happy. Well, maybe he is. All we know is that for the first time in months, he feels calm inside. So he stays? For a while. Then he gets restless, and soon it's time to go back. Is that one? No. 
You didn't even look. Yes, I did. It's like you don't even think he'll come. <sighs> How much longer? You just gotta keep watching. That time we came when I was little. You fell asleep. You didn't see him when I was sleeping? I would have told you. I would have lifted you up and we'd shout to the heavens, my little one. We'd shout till we couldn't make a sound. You've never seen a curlew, have you? No. Never? No. Great Grandpa Fred brought me here again and again and he told me what happened. And I swore that once the old man died, I'd never come back, but here I am. What happened? I don't know. I just, I just had to. No. What happened to the curlew? Oh. People didn't realize what they were doing. Or if they did, they decided not to think about it. When? Oh, long time ago. Late 1800s. Two, 250 years ago. There were millions of curlews. So many, they blocked out the sun when they flew over. They were so fast that nothing could catch them. It had always been that way, and it looked like it always would. But things were changing for people. Before that, most people lived on farms or in the country, and they fed themselves. They only took what they could use. But then, when people moved into cities to work in factories, they couldn't grow their own food. They had to buy it. And that meant there was money to be made by catching and selling food. More than you could eat. And suddenly, the curlew's great defense, jumping up and flying away, didn't work at all. Hunters just shot them. They shot them and shot them, hundreds, thousands at a time, wagon loads, more than anyone could eat. They just kept on shooting. Why didn't somebody stop them? No one thought they needed to. They didn't think it would ever happen. And even when it did, the hunters said it wasn't happening. It's just how they lived. So the hunters were happier pretending there was just as many curlews as there were before. But there weren't. Nope, there weren't. And if you were a curlew, at that point, it came down to one question. What? What kind of person was that who saw you fly over? Should you keep going, or is it OK to stop? Was that someone who knows, or someone who pretends they don't? We're the people who know, right? Oh, I don't know. But it's true, right? That's the kind of people we are. Well, we're trying. <laughs> Thank you.
you be listening to excerpts from The Last Curlew, adapted and developed by Tom Allen from the novel Last of the Curlews by Fred Bosworth. In the cast, we hear Jenny Young read Deary and Deborah Drakeford read Grandma. Laura Gemmel was heard on harp and Atsuko Kimura on violin. The Last Curlew is the last of the cabarets for this winter and spring season. The series resumes in the fall in September. In the meantime, there are still new podcasts on the way. You can subscribe on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud at soulpepper.ca. Music programming at Soul Pepper is made possible by a generous multi-year gift from the Slate family. And our audio programs, including podcasts like these, are thanks to the support of Richard Wernham and Julia West. I'm Gregory Sinclair. Thanks for listening.